Let me add my word of welcome to you. We are so glad you're here. We are today at um, Money, 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 number two. And the, uh, the word is out in some people's minds that all the church wants is your money. Um, and uh, that's not true. We want all your money and a lot more. Uh, the, um, the fact is that there is not anything more important in our material lives and in our marriages and so forth than money. Money is the single most fought over subject in marriage. Um, we talk about marriage sometime at, around Valentine's Day, so we can, we can um, make the connection that way. But uh, above all, we need to know what the Lord Jesus said, and he said a, just volumes about money in his teaching. So it uh, is m long before Jesus, the scripture speaks about money, and long after Jesus ascended to heaven, there's a lot about money in in the rest of the New Testament, but the Gospels are full of it. So we use as our text uh, a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Matthew 6, Jesus, quote, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The treasure principle is you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's what Jesus says here. Now the key in this treasure principle uh, whole body of thought is God owns everything. I'm his money manager. God owns everything. I'm his money manager. The second key is my heart always goes where I put God's money. We talked about that last week. Today we are going to deal with uh, uh, principle key number three. Heaven, not earth, is my home. So, let's uh, say this another way. Heaven, not earth, is my home. Therefore, visualize with me a dot and a line out here. The dot represents life on earth. The line represents eternity. Live for the line, not the dot. Okay, that's a way to remember that. Live for the line, not the dot. Hebrews 11, the faith chapter says, All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And here is the way, here is the key to living for the line, not the dot. They admitted they were aliens and strangers on earth. It's really scary when we get to feeling too at home in this earth. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. So in the dot, 
We are the ambassadors of Christ. Live as if this is a temporary deal, as if we were ambassadors sent by a political entity. We would live and, and speak for that entity, not ourselves. Hebrews 11, back into the faith chapter, it says, Instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Longing for this line, not this dot. Therefore, this, this has always piqued me. I started preaching when I was in my teens. And I loved this passage. And it, it always just reached out and says, come on in here. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. And there's the line. You've seen the bumper sticker that says, uh, uh, he who dies with the most toys wins. Now let's think about that. He who dies is dead. And he left all the toys. Some of them are not worth fighting over. But if there was anything of value, they can cause division in the kids. Everybody's mad and he's dead. That's a winning deal. Or visualize with me all of the stuff that we wrap our arms around, the toys. Visualize all those toys and fall in line with a bunch of trucks and pickup trucks going up this hill and going up this hill. And they come up to a flat spot on the top that's sort of halfway paved. And these guys are getting out of their trucks and they're taking out computers. And they're walking over to the edge of the parking lot affair and just throwing it down. Well, you need to walk over to the edge to see what's going on. And you look down, there's a pit, and it's just full of beautiful bass boats, beautiful cars, and lesser things like good computers. It's a landfill. That's where all the stuff we bust our what's-it over to get, that's where it ends up. We leave it here. Years ago, I got the car that I wanted. This was 40-some years ago. And it was... It was big, and it was the best Buick, and it was fun to drive, and it had a 455 cubic inch engine, and it never got 15 miles to the gallon on the road or, in t or anywhere, and uh, you could, in that big old car, you could put your foot on the floor, and it would try to go somewhere, <laughs> even though you can't call a body that big with only one engine in it, a muscle car, it acted, it tried to act like a muscle car. So, I was really enjoying this car, and I was in prayer one night, at we had these kneeling altars, and I was right down here, after a service. I don't remember why I was kneeling there, I don't remember who preached, I probably did, but I don't remember. But I remember the Lord saying, I want you to give that car. And this was a traveling team that he mentioned. They were friends of ours, and, and they didn't have 
transportation that was worth, I mean, it was awful. And uh, so there were five of them traveling in this car and pulling a trailer, and it was just a catastrophe. And I thought, well, okay, you know, they can take over the payments. No, no, the Lord said, I want you to keep the payments up and just give them the car. Well, of course, you know, you start immediately rebuking the devil and, you know. But, but the Lord doesn't rebuke like the devil does. And so the message was very clear. And so I got on the phone and started trying to call these people. We talked fairly regularly, maybe every week. And I tried for two weeks to get them and never could. And the Lord said, okay, that was a test and you passed it. What that did was kill the ownership of that deal in me. Now, I had this great trial that I brought on myself over a car, but boy, it was nice. And I actually drove that car to Kansas City when we moved and bought another one like it because those are good cars. And I saw that car on the street. I knew who had, had gotten it, who had ended up with it. And I saw that car on the street in Raytown a little bit later, and it had rust spots in it, and it looked awful. And I thought, and you went through all of that for a rust bucket? But it wasn't a rust bucket. You know, the end of everything is kind of gives meaning to what it is now. It's called the residual effect in logic. And it's like, duh, wow, brilliant. This stuff ends up in the landfill that we fight over and, and work harder than we should to get. Now, hard work is very important, but not over stuff that's temporary. Solomon, who was the richest man on earth, had this to say. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, he says, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Well, if I just had two million, but that's not enough to do some things. And so if I just had five million the more you have, the more you want. It's, it's such a, an exercise in idiocy to hear these guys that are brilliant athletes, and their brilliance ends there, apparently. And they're fighting over whether they're going to get 15 million this year or 18 million. It's like, you guys just need to, don't, don't. Say anything that's quotable. Don't let anybody hear you open your mouth. Just go out and play ball. You do great. We respect you. We honor your athleticism. You're stupid. <laughs> never have enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income, Solomon says. The more you have, the less you're satisfied. Money really is wonderful. As goods increase... So do those who consume them. The more you have, the more people, including the government, will come after it. Solomon continues, And what benefit are they to the owner, talking about riches, except to feast his eyes on them? 
The more you have, the more you realize it does you no good. Quote, the sleep of the laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich man permits him no sleep, unquote. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Solomon continues, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. The more you have, the more you can hurt yourself by holding on to it. Continuing, or wealth lost through some misfortune. The more you have, the more you have to lose. And Solomon winds down this section saying, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. Or the more you have the more you will leave behind. A.W. Tozer, an author who is, uh, those of you who do much reading of, of spiritual things know that he is known as a revivalist and is a holiness preacher and will just hammer you. Here is what he says. As base a thing as money is, or often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry, clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. End of quote. Very Strong teaching. And the scripture, St. Paul to Timothy in chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 6, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Treasure principle key number four is giving is the only antidote for materialism. I can stand up here and hammer you about how you're going to leave all that stuff and you'll go out and just continue to try to collect that stuff. That's what we do. But if you act... If you act in a certain way, you can begin a therapy for materialism. Now, materialism will take you out ultimately. It will take you out spiritually in the ultimate end because we, we just grow roots out of our hands into the things that we grasp. And as we pull those to ourselves, the Lord will do to us what he did to me about the Buick and we won't be able to give it away we will hold on to it in rebellion and rebellion is not going to heaven if you're out of whack with authority don't look for Jesus you won't be seeing him except as a judge that you don't want to see you say you sending me to hell yes 
Get, watch the body language, okay? Yes, you will not in rebellion. God's saying, you do this, and you say, I won't do this. I rebuke you, devil. He, you won't be there. You say, you think you can backslide? The scripture thinks you can. Maybe that's enough. Maybe it doesn't matter what I think. And uh, you can know God and move into materialism and be lost. And I think Solomon, who had, who had incredible wisdom besides being the richest man, the most powerful ruler in his part of the world, probably you won't see in heaven, and that's really scary to me. Because he fell in love with this stuff. He, he fell in love with the power that he had. And uh, I know that's not a very happy message, uh, but it, it's really very strong in Scripture. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's all about God, not about us. It's saying, I'm not the point. He is the point. He does not exist for me. I exist for Him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. I've heard people call materialism affluenza. You get the afflu. And uh, there is a shot. Did you get your afflu shot? It is giving. It is putting God's money into God's kingdom to do God's work. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person with a greater agenda. Giving affirms Christ's lordship. It dethrones me and exalts him. It breaks the chains of mammon. You guys know what mammon is? Money. It breaks those chains that would wrap around me, tie me up, and hold me out of the eternal home. Giving does not strip me of vested interests. Rather, it shifts my vested interests from earth to heaven. It goes from self to God. That's what giving does. C.S. Lewis says, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. End of quote. Treasure principle key number five. God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God comes right out and tells us why he gives us more money than we need. It's not so we can find more ways to spend it. I can do that. It's not so we can find more ways uh, to indulge ourselves and spoil our children. It is so we can insulate ourselves from uh, needing God's provision is the way we do a lot of that money. You know, if I get enough money, then I don't even need insurance. I get enough money, I don't need God. Jesus said, it's uh, easier for a camel. Camels, the top of their hump is about here. I have ridden a number of camels, and they're tall. And they're uglier in person than they are in picture. 
And, uh, but, you know, it beats walking, so I you know, ride, ride a camel. And so uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved. Now, rich people are those who have all they need to eat, have a good place to live, uh, have transportation, and that sort of thing. So, thank God we're rich, sort of. Except, we're trying to get this camel. Now, I remember somebody saying, well, the eye of a needle was a small gate beside the large gate in the city wall, and it was about so tall, and they made these camels get down on their on their almost on their bellies and kind of crawl through this and that's what that meant so that it could be done you could see it no Jesus is talking about an impossibility the phenomenon in culture did not occur until well after Jesus was off the scene there was no such thing as this was called by the way the eye of a needle but it was it was generations after Jesus said that so he's talking about an absolute human impossibility you can't be saved Except through the power and the miracle stuff of God if you're wealthy. That's what he said. I like that about as much as you do. We just don't, doesn't that thrill you? Don't you love it when I stand up here and say, you can't be saved. Well, the disciples said, who, who then can be saved? Because the rich guys in their culture uh, many of them made their avocation acting religious. And so they appeared to be the saved people, as it were. And who then can be saved? And Jesus just says, with man, this is impossible. Not going to happen. With God, all things are possible. It can happen. You can be saved, though you have plenty to eat. You're warm, you're well-dressed, and you can, you've got wheels. You can be saved. But it's a serious issue to deal with money. And that's the reason we take a few sermons every year to talk about this. Because I do not intend for one of you to go to hell. If I have any power in prayer and in influence, in teaching, and if I thought it were necessary, I'd get in your face one-on-one. -on -one. I do not intend to lose you. God gave you to me. You're in my heart. I pray for you every day. But beyond that, I intend to spend eternity with you. And I'm not going to hell, rich or poor, okay? Because God is able to save me. And he is able to save you. But you're going to have to take away the importance of all of this stuff and get focused on the Lord. He will work with you on that that's the that's the great thing he will work with you god does not prosper us so we can get all of this raised standard of living it is so we can give it is so we can give generously when god provides more money we often think this is a blessing and in many cases we needed a little more because of some of the standards we had set for ourselves we were not able to to fully Accomplish, and so this made it easier for us to to reach these goals that we had set. Not in the spirit, particularly. Just we had set them. We saw that on TV, or we saw our friends with it, or mom and dad had this, and we wanted it. 
when God gives you more money, you might also say, this is a test. This is a test. How will I handle this test? I want to ask you a question. Is there a line we can cross as children of God where, where we are living too luxuriously? The house is too, too large. How many millions that you pay for a house, how, how far can you go? Uh, how many hundred thousands for a car? What, what takes us from living like managers to living like owners? I have some friends, and we visited in their home. I knew they had a lot of money. This guy uh, worked his tail off and, and built a business and sold it, and they haven't worried much about money since then. Now, when you pay several million dollars for a house and then the bottom drops out of the market, you know, we who, who are a little more in the middle of the middle class may have lost tens of thousands, twenties of thousands. You know what? <laughs> My friend lost millions. Nice house. It's on the water. It's on the Atlantic Ocean. It's, uh, uh, it's got the screen thing that comes up over all this area that is, that's the pool and all of this out here and it goes right up over the top of the balcony that overlooks all of this and it's all screened in you never have to close that unless it just you don't get unless you want to close this off it's all got sliding doors and walls and and uh, it's all glass it's cool it's a nice house I could live there <laughs> I don't know whether I'd want to own it I'd hate to have to pay the taxes on that sucker and I would really hate to have that sick feeling that said, I just lost a couple million bucks. I just lost a couple million bucks. Um, which sounds like a lot to me, because I'm not a very high roller. But um, do, a few years ago, uh, we had these guys on TV that, uh, that became known for uh, a high lifestyle. They were preachers. They happened to be Assembly of God preachers. And they were just making a lot of money. And I was personally acquainted with one of them. I had met the other one. But, but one of them, and uh, he, was, he was trying to do the right things part of the time because he was giving one or two million dollars a month to world missions. And I was really pleased with that. I wasn't pleased with him, but I liked that practice. But I remember when I met this other guy, um, and we visited a few minutes uh, Eunice and his wife and he and I, and um, they were waiting for their car to be brought around. And there, when you know, that's not the valet parking guy, that's the chauffeur. And I thought, and I was asking myself because this was a question because these guys had not entered into scandal yet, and uh, so they were just you know they were just cranking on and they had everybody's attention. And I was saying to myself. How much is too much? Maybe it's when you don't drive your own car. I, you know, I, I was, this was a serious question. I was trying to figure how much it is it okay and, and 
from this line forward, we give all the rest of it, but we can go up to this line. Well, I, I have changed since then, and I, I think, I think uh, if I ever have to travel, that, and I don't want to own a, a private jet, I just want to have enough money to lease one. Because our, our militant Islamic friends have set us up so that it's really hard to get on a plane. And then, unless you're willing or have the good fortune to get bumped up, in, willing to pay for or have the good fortune to get bumped up into first class, then you go sit in this. And there's it's not enough space. And I'm not claustrophobic, but there's still not enough space. Okay. But you see what I'm talking about? Where is that line? And I think it will be different for every one of you. So I cannot tell you where the line is. I don't even know where it is for me. I've never had it tested that much. <laughs> Why don't you try me? No. Uh, <clears throat> you see, we act as if we're owners of this stuff instead of managers. Now, if you were the, a... a an investor and you had either inherited or developed yourself a pool of investment funds and you had this manager that was over that and it was his job to take good care of your money and to increase it and if he started living like my friend on the east coast you might say we need to talk about your lifestyle uh, I'm supposed to live like that and you're supposed to live a little closer to the middle class. Would, wouldn't we? Would we? I think if you cared about your money, you would. But we want to live like owners. Now, I, I realize that you don't have that kind of money and that you're not living like, like my friend. And if you are, let me know because I want to share it with you. <laughs> but it's the same principle all the way through. How much is enough? How much is too much? You meet God and figure that out. 1 Corinthians 4 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about giving, and um, it's a relief offering for a, a sister congregation in another city. And the Corinthians are not broken, are broke, they're not broke, they're not uh, poverty-stricken at this time. He says, at the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality as it is written. He who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. You see, it's not about what we own. It's not about our ownership. It's about where God wants this money. Now, next week, I will, I will open the Scripture with you, and we will look at, at how to give what you give and where to give what you give. But the principle of giving is very, very important because we can, we can open up Scripture, and it says do this or do that, and you're not going to do it if you're owning it. I'm not going to. I can't afford it. Do you realize how much money you're talking about, Pastor? Yes, I do. I, I realize. I know at the end of the year what Eunice and I have record of in our giving. And it is a thrill to me. And, it's, and we still are not on poverty. Trust me. Thank God. I don't want poverty. But it's, uh, we are so blessed. 
he who gathered much did not have too much. He who gathered little did not have too little. That's when everybody shares and takes care of each other. Alfred Nobel, in 1988, read about his death. Nobel was uh, a Swede, and he read in a French newspaper about his brother, or his brother had died in France, but they had, the, the French uh, reporter had gotten it mixed up, and it wasn't Ludwig who, who died in, in that, uh, in that uh, obituary, but it was Alfred. And he read what they said about him, and what they said was, the merchant of death is dead. What that meant was, Alfred had invented and had marketed, manufactured and marketed dynamite, and had gotten rich over people being able to kill other people. And that's what that headline said, the merchant of death is dead. Now, get this, I love this so much. It hit Alfred so hard that he said, hold it. He got to read his obituary before his death. He changed, and he had $9 million, which he set up in a trust to award what we now call the Nobel Prizes. He got to change who he was and what he did. And he is well remembered, not as the merchant of death, even though that, of course, was a mistake. Ludwig didn't invent nor market nor manufacture. Uh, but we have, the, we have the ability to change what we don't like. You might, if, if the Lord begins to deal with you about this, let me, suggest a, let me suggest an exercise that might help you write out your obituary the way it'll be. And not just, you know, this, he was married to this gal and they had these kids and they had these grandkids and had three great-grandkids and he worked at where and where and write out about the character, about what you did with your money, how you were perceived in your neighborhood, what the little kids on the block thought about you. It would be interesting if you ask these uh, these uh, pre twenty somethings what they think about you, and they might say. Who are you? But write out your obituary, and if it's the way you want it, just run that track. But if it's not, you're still alive, and you can change. We have with us this morning the parents of Pastor John and the grandfather. His parents are such godly people and they have such a reputation around town. And Grandpa 
is just one of the fathers of the faithful in Kansas City. And when these, and when these people die, it's going to be fun to watch what we do at, as if you're going to predecease me, what, the, what we do at your funeral because there are some funerals that are easy and fun because these people just nailed it with the Lord and with kindness and loving everybody and right living and they loved their spouse and they loved their kids and, and that is really easy. There are, other, there are other funerals that we have that you want to, you kind of do this little dance to make sure you try to say something nice and not lie. Because I'm not going to lie at your funeral. My need to be believed is greater than my need to compliment you at your death. So make it easy on me, okay? And here is our chance to redo it. Let us pray. Father, help us today.